Um, love to do so. Glad that you're here with us this morning. And I don't know about you, I am one. I love Christmas music. And as far as I'm concerned, we can just go ahead and hit play on that. Like, I don't know, July 5th or whenever. You know, way before the day after Christmas or uh, Thanksgiving. But that's just me. I love, there's so much, like, I think, depth in the and the words and the lyrics that represent, I think, a lot of the longing that we have and that we experience within our own hearts. And not just us, but I would say our culture. So many people have these longings that I think we realize and we stop and we think about and contemplate around this time of year. So I'm loving that we're singing some Christmas uh, music. Hey, I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving. Um, you know, Thanksgiving is always... One of those times, the holidays, when we get together with family, which can both be a great part of it, and it can be the, you know, drama side of it too. Um, And so we won't get into the whole drama side of it today. I'm sure there's plenty of time to talk about that another time. But but what it is interesting about, about the holidays, when we get together, it seems like our conversations are often a little bit different than the usual, a little bit different than maybe the passing conversations we have when we see each other just on a given day or a given week. It seems like we often will talk about like uh, the stories that maybe just come up every holiday and we retell them over and over because it's just part of like our family. It's part of our family like history. It's part of our, you know, our lineage almost, so to speak, or we talk about different family members. Oh, remember so-and-so, and remember when aunt so-and-so did this, or great-grandpa did this, or, or somebody who's older than us might tell a story that they pass on. And we just get this little bit of a sense of some connectedness, a little bit of a sense of like who we are in our family, and, um, and it can be really interesting. And I think what we'll notice a lot of times, whether spoken directly or not, is there is this undercurrent of some hope that seems, or longing for hope that fills our stories. It might be the kind of stories of like, you remember when somebody in our family did this. They took this risk, and they took this risk on behalf of our, they moved here, they took on this job, whatever it was, like, oh man, yeah, and look at what happened. You know, here we all sit around this table now because of them. Or it might be times when we realize like hope is feeling a little bit hopeless, where we're like, man, that, that chair is still empty, or that person's still looking for this year to be different in one way or another. I think we notice that hope is there. And one of the most difficult things about hope is waiting, because we're just like, what's going to happen in the process? What will actually happen on the end, regardless of what I hope for? Now, what we begin to realize is it really matters where we put our hope, what we put our hope in, who we put our hope in. Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So this idea that it just keeps getting pushed off. And a lot of times that comes because what we put it in didn't, didn't deliver. The person, the relationship, the job title, the promotion, the bank account, whatever it is, it doesn't deliver. And so we just are left feeling even more disappointed and even more frustrated. You know, as I've been thinking about this, um, this theme for today, hope awaiting, I started to think, can you just imagine what it was like for some of the 
people early on in the Bible, people who heard, like in Genesis 3 at the beginning of the Bible, after there was awareness that there's brokenness and there's sin in the world, and that God comes in and he promises that there's going to be a Savior who's going to come. Promises that. says, one day will come a Savior through the line of this, of this woman. It will happen. Think about the hundreds of years that followed with misplaced hope in leaders or living in slavery and oppression under empires, rampant sin, all while watching the promises of God, waiting for somebody who will come and rescue them. Literally, the Old Testament closes, or as it's coming to a close, they're the people of Israel living under the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Empire. There's this sense, at least though, of the prophets speaking into all of this mess. The prophets saying, return to God. Here are promises. If you will return to God, if you will turn from your sin, if you will humble yourself. Like there is a different way. They're also shouting um, promises of hope that they've been clinging to for years. Some of those we'll look at here in just a little bit. So they had those. But then come these what are known as like the 400 silent years or so between the closing of the Old Testament and the first writings in the New Testament where there's no written communication from God. There's no prophets writing things down. We don't have any of the New Testament writings yet. Can you imagine what it was like to live in that time? Like for us, it's just history. It's just numbers. It's just dates. But I mean, you're people who you've heard of a Savior coming in Genesis 3. And you've waited, and you've put hope in one person, one empire, one leader, one system over and over and over again, and it's not delivered. And then we come to Matthew chapter 1. The first writings speaking into this vacuum, speaking into this longing of hope, this desire for something to be different, this desire for the Savior that they've heard about, And then Matthew comes on the scene and he writes the first writings that we have. And if you open up to Matthew chapter 1, you open up and you look and you see what? A list of names. Wow, how that really rallies the troops, right? That really gives that sense of hope. Here we go, what's he going to tell us? After all these years, 400 years, we're waiting, we're waiting. What are we going to see open Oh, there's a list of names. You know, now, now genealogies are usually, in our time and in our culture, usually kind of considered boring, irrelevant. In fact, a lot of times we skim them at best, if not just jump right over them, right? And I think part of that's probably representative of us being a pretty individualistic and disconnected culture. We're not a very family-based culture like many cultures still around the world are. And so for us, it's like, uh, what's the point? Is there, like, why, why do we even keep lists? I mean, I think, actually, probably for a lot of us, um, we can maybe cite our genealogy back to maybe, what, like, great-grandparent? I mean, maybe some can go, like, another generation beyond that, but most, that's about what we know of at best. But, you know, that's not the case for many cultures around the world. I've got different friends who uh, serve all around the world. And some of them, especially working in contexts like in the Middle East and stuff, they'll tell me that when some of their, the people that they're sharing Jesus with um, come, and then they'll come to genealogies in the Bible, especially ones like here in Matthew 1, they're like, oh, 
so there, there is some evidence to what you believe. Like, oh, okay, because they, they know their family line. Like, they trace it back. It's significant. It informs who they are. It informs a lot of things. And they're like, oh, so you actually do have some sense of, like, order and, like, evidence to this. Like, okay, that's interesting to know. I had a friend in high school from somewhere in the Middle East, and in his name alone, he had six generations listed. His name was Murshed Muhammad, Murshed Ahmad Abdullah Khadija. That's his name. Right there in his name, he's connected to six generations. He at least knows those people and what they're about. So I just think that's kind of fascinating. So we come to genealogies and we're like, ah, is there anything there? I'm just going to tell you there is so much here. I'm really excited. I'm humbled and I'm excited to share um, what I've been able to study and learn from commentaries, from just soaking in the word, from other pastors. Um, really good. So we're going to jump into this now. Before we do, a couple, of words, a couple of words about this genealogy. Number one, it's not comprehensive. Matthew doesn't intend for it to be comprehensive. In fact, he even tells us that later in, in verse 17. We'll get to that a bit later. But it's not comprehensive. It is accurate, but it's not comprehensive. Number two, it differs from Luke's account. Now, Luke has a different purpose. He's writing to a different audience. He has something else he's trying to communicate. He traces Jesus' lineage back to Adam. He's trying to, uh, he's trying to clarify and make clear the humanity of Jesus, whereas Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience who is very much needing to know who the Messiah is. Does he come from the line of David? And so Matthew is making that very clear in the way that he traces the genealogy. Okay, so with that being said, we're going to jump right in here to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to stop at the end of this verse for a minute because there's a lot here. In fact, we could spend our entire time on this one verse. Starts off. This is how Matthew speaks into the vacuum that we've just talked about. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we've gotten fairly comfortable hearing the word Jesus, the name Jesus, Jesus Christ, even some of these other titles. But Matthew's introducing a new character into the, new, into the biblical literature into the New Testament. He's introducing a new character. They've been waiting. Where is hope? Where is it coming from? And the, some of the first words he writes are Jesus Christ. So let me just tell you the first thing that we learn about hope from this genealogy is that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. As these people have been waiting and looking, where is hope going to come from? Is it this ruler? Is it this empire? Is it this promise? Is it this system? The set of laws, where is it going to come from? Matthew's like, before we even get very far, and let me just make abundantly, explicitly clear, our hope, the hope of the world is in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, in his very name, Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. In his name alone. So yes, we get used to it, we read Jesus, whatever, we carry on. His name alone means the Lord saves. While Joshua was going to lead the people into the promised land in the Old Testament, Jesus would come and lead all of humanity into new life, those who would choose to follow him. Then you've got Jesus Christ. Christ, as you may have heard, is not Jesus' last name. It means the anointed one, the Messiah. And while in the Old Testament there were people that God anointed for a specific time and purpose, Jesus 
Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the Savior that they have been waiting for. Then he goes on to the son of David. Now this is significant. Not only is, as the people hear this, are they going, oh, David, we remember. Those were the good old days. Those were the days when the kingdom was strong, when we were united, when we were expanding and growing. Like, oh, right. Not only that, but they're remembering now the promises that were spoken to David and about the Savior who would come through David. For example, we're going to go through a few of these passages, so just kind of go with me. You can make note of them or whatever you like to do here as you take notes. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's wanting to build a temple to God, but God says, nope, it's not for you to build. It's your son Solomon who will build it. And he says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down, when you die with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then in verse 16, it says again, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that forever there needs to really grab our attention, because while he's speaking to David about what's going to soon come, he's obviously speaking about things that go far beyond David. He's establishing a covenant. There's a number of covenants in the Old Testament that most of the writings are wrapped around and woven through that Jesus fulfills. And this is one of those. This is the Davidic covenant. He's promising that there will be a continual seed from David's line and that there will be one on David's throne forever. Do you get that? That means that there are promises that God made to David back then that are still true today. You get that? Like God said something to them way back then that's still true for us today. Have you guys ever had that where like you're around the Thanksgiving table maybe or something and you're, you're like remembering a significant event back in your family history that you still feel the effects of today? That's like this right here. The prophets clung to this promise. That someday a Savior is going to come. Someday an eternal king is going to come and he's going to reign forever. For example, we've got Isaiah 9. This is a passage we hear about around Christmas time. But listen, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this forever. God is saying, I'm telling you, there's something that's going to happen. There's one who's going to come and his kingdom will be forever. Isaiah 11 Verse 1 and 10 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples? Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Root of Jesse from the line of David. Two more passages here real quick. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for, a, for David a righteous branch, 
and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king. The prophets are clinging to this. They're continuing to call the people back as as sin is going rampant and as they are being oppressed by other empires. They're saying, don't forget, God promised us that there will be a king that will come and he'll be forever. Ezekiel, now they're in exile. All of them, first the northern kingdom, then eventually the southern kingdom, and they are all in exile. And Ezekiel 37, speaking into these dark days, says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. You know what's fascinating about that? David's already dead. Solomon's already dead when he writes this. So who is he talking about? He's not talking about King David. He's not talking about Solomon. He's talking about the promised one who would come through their line, who would be king forever, never off of his throne. Matthew is not just giving us a list of names. Matthew is shouting from the first sentence written in the New Testament that the promise given to David and the people back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is being fulfilled in Jesus. He is the promised king. He is the one who will reign forever. He had not forgotten his people and he had not forgotten his promise. So if you look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 17, I said that there was some intentionality about how Matthew put together this genealogy and what he's trying to communicate. He says in chapter in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So there's three sets of 14. Matthew could have arranged that in a number of ways. Remember he left some people out. He included some people. There's an intentionality between, behind what he's trying to communicate. Some wonder what that's about. Why sets of 14 instead of another number? Why not numbers of 12, like the 12 tribes? Or, or 7, the perfect number 7 in the Bible. Like, why 14? One theory that I came across that seems very interesting and certainly plausible is this term called the gematria. It's, a, it's a, an interpretation tool where in Hebrew particularly, there's numeric value given to the letters of the alphabet. Uh, this is a common thing in Hebrew. And when you add up the numeric value of the consonants of David's names, because they didn't put vowels there, the consonants D, W, D, it adds up to 14. So some say Matthew is trying to be very clear as he develops this lineage and he gives three sets of 14. He's trying to point and signal Jesus is of the line of David. He is the eternal king that we've been waiting for. Interesting idea. He goes on. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Now he reaches back to the father of the people of Israel. Genesis 12. You remember what God said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
in you, through you, through your lineage, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's saying, I'm going to form a people out of you, and I'm going to make a commitment, a contract, a covenant with you. Now, I'm going to bless you, but it's so that you will be a blessing to all people, and through your family all will come a Savior, will come one through whom all of the nations will be blessed. Genesis 17, verse 4 through 6, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Through Abraham's line, God will send a king. And his kingdom will expand to bless all nations, all peoples, which we hear about in, Genesis, or in the book of Revelation. Fascinating. And last verse here, just because Judah is mentioned in the genealogy in Genesis 49.10, says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. The promise of a king to come through Judah. David and all peoples and all nations will bow down and worship him. This is how Matthew opens the New Testament. I mean, we, we tend to just skim right over this and jump and say, let's get to the good stuff. We're one sentence in. And we could continue on and on. This is like a summary of the entire Old Testament right here. He's saying at the center of history is Jesus. All of history either points to Jesus or flows from Jesus. It's not about us. It's not even just about our waiting. It's all about what God is doing in and through him. So, with all of that in mind, let's read through this genealogy. And then let's look at a few more things that I think we learn here about hope as we're looking through this Advent season. So, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, sorry, by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Last set. And the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, 
Hazar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the family tree through which the promised Savior of God stepped into history. Now, we look at it, and again, it's a list of names. Who is one from the other? But for those listening and those reading early on in Jesus' day, each name, each event is dripping with Old Testament history. Each name, it's like when you're around the table at Thanksgiving, you might reference people and mental pictures come into your mind and memories and thoughts, some of them good, some of them bad, and you're remembering, but they're informing things. Other people around might be like, I don't know who Aunt Martha is. Why is everybody laughing right now? You know, but, but you know because names represent, and, and that's what's happening here. So what is it that Matthew is wanting to communicate to us about God and about hope? The second thing I think we learn about hope is that hope is secure because of the grace of God. Hope is secure because of the grace of God. As we read through this list of names, it is clear that God sent Jesus not because of Israel's faithfulness and righteousness, but in spite of their sin. See, in Jesus' day, a genealogy was like a person's resume. The stronger, the cleaner, the, the genealogy, the more a person's sense of worth. And so a lot of times people would scrub their genealogies, just like people might scrub their resumes, make themselves look better, look cleaner, look like they are, have more value and significance. But Matthew doesn't do that, does he? In fact, he chooses to include names that he could have very easily left out and probably most would have advised that he does go ahead and just leave out. But he doesn't. Why is that? It's because Matthew's not just trying to communicate about history here. He is being accurate. But he's trying to communicate more. He's trying to communicate about the very character of God. He's putting on display the grace and the loving kindness of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Like, let's just look at a few of the people listed in here to demonstrate that it is by God's grace that people are associated with God. For example, you start right there with Abraham. Yeah, the father of the people of Israel, but he was raised a polytheist, meaning he worshipped many gods growing up, and a polygamist who had many wives and, and who, who lied that his wife was his sister just to save his own neck. Then you move on and you got Jacob who deceived his father to steal his brother's birthright. Then you've got Judah. We'll talk a little bit more about Judah in a minute, but he had an apparent weakness for prostitutes and ends up getting his daughter-in-law pregnant. Interesting. Okay. David, he's in there. He's an adulterer and murderer. Then you've got four women listed, which many of you may know. That's very unusual for Jesus' time. Women aren't usually listed in the genealogies, unfortunately not being seen as significant in that day. But Matthew chooses to include them, and not just them. I mean, he could have chose, like, what, Rachel or Deborah or some of these that may be a little bit, you know, cleaner. But he deliberately chooses four women who 
are surrounded by or immersed in some kind of sexual scandal. So you've got Tamar. She is Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, when her husband died, she found herself a widow without any kids. Customary of that time, a brother-in-law should have taken her as his wife, should have helped her have a baby, and then, you know, the family lineage can continue on. And somebody can help take care of her. But Onan, her brother-in-law, intentionally keeps from getting her pregnant. And then so she's waiting for her father-in-law Judah to do something, and he's not taking any action, and she's sitting there in this vulnerable spot, and she goes, okay. Dresses herself up as a prostitute, seduces him. He lays with her. She gets pregnant. There you go. Interestingly enough, as he's about to throw stones at her in public, she then produces evidence that actually you're the, you're the father of the child. A little, little interesting there. Then you've got Rahab, who is a prostitute. She took a risky stand to protect some Israeli spies from her own nation's military. She's a prostitute from another nation. You've got Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. And they are known for their sexual immorality. Um, and then Bathsheba. Now, what's interesting about Bathsheba, she's not even listed by name in this genealogy. And I think there's two reasons for that. She's listed as the wife of Uriah. I think Matthew is saying, number one, she's, she's in this list, but let's keep in mind, she was somebody else's wife when she entered into this list. Let's just keep that in mind. So I think that's one thing he's saying. And then I think he's also pointing to the next thing here is not only do we have moral outcasts here in the list, but we have ethnic outcasts. Because these other three women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, are all from outside of the people of Israel. If you know anything about Jewish culture, cleanliness, purity, both in, in, in food and in lineage, all of that is very important. They're not from the Jewish line. And while Bathsheba may have technically been, because she was born, she was a wife of Uriah, who's a Hittite, she's associated with those outside of um, the Jews. And so Matthew is saying, hey, Jesus is a, so his, his line, he's coming through and for ethnic outcasts, moral outcasts. I mean, why are these names included in the line that lead to Christ? For the same reason that our names are included in the list of names that lead from Christ. It's only by the sovereign grace of God. It's only, and that's what Matthew is displaying over and over. God saves not by any merit, and you or me, it saves only by his grace. This means that there is nothing in your past, there's nothing in my past that can keep us from being welcome to sit around Jesus' table. I mean, when you look at some of those names and stories, there's nothing Jesus wasn't afraid to be associated and to welcome these people to be a part of his story. And that's the same for you and for me. And this doesn't just apply for those of you who may be here and like, I haven't yet decided if I'm going to follow Jesus or not. This applies for those of us who are followers of Jesus because we all live with a daily struggle to want to scrub our resumes, so to speak, to increase our sense of self-worth in one way or another. And right here, Matthew's saying, you can set all that down. You can just let go of all that pressure. You can just let it all go. Because Jesus welcomes people who shouldn't have any reason to be associated with him to be a part of his story and his line. He comes for and through and to the outcasts. Number, next thing we learn about hope here is that secure hope is in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God just means that we trust that God is at work through the good 
and the bad to bring about his purposes. When we look at this list of names, again, it can be easy to just kind of distance ourselves and say, I don't really know. But if we look at what's happening there, and if we kind of just spend a little bit of time, you begin to see, like, it had to be really hard at times to be in those spots and to see how and where God was at work. And where was he going to bring the fulfillment of his promises? How was that actually going to happen? I mean, take, for example, Abraham. We know this story, right? Abraham and Sarah. He's told you're going to have this child and through him there's going to become this great nation and this and that. And they're like, that's great. We don't have a child. Oh, don't worry. I promise I'm going to give you one. 25 years later, finally, the son comes. What's it like waiting in those 25 years? Well, there's a point when they begin to doubt and wonder, did we misunderstand God? Did he forget? So let's set up plan B. And they have a child through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. God says, nope, nope, nope. I didn't forget. I do still have a plan and it's not through Hagar. What about Ruth? What's it like to be Ruth? This woman living in this time, they, she, they leave her husband, her sons, her new daughter-in-laws, they leave their land to go to find some um, food in a time of famine. Her husband dies. Her sons die. She's left a widow. One of her daughter-in-laws commits to staying with her, so she's now responsible for her. How vulnerable. Who's going to take care of us? We're not even in our own land now. Do we travel back? Like, what, what do we do? How vulnerable to sit and live in that. Like, and they're waiting. Okay, we believe, God, you're good. But, I mean, have you guys ever been in that moment when you're in the middle of the waiting part? And you're like, I know in my head, I've been there. God's good. I know it in my head, but nothing around me is showing it right now. Or I'm not, sh- I don't see clearly how that's about to happen. What about these bad kings listed in the genealogy? I mean, these aren't some who just kind of like stumbled a little bit. Like These are some who intentionally tried to turn the people of Israel away from worshiping God. You, you take Ahaz, for example. He's characterized as an evil man who participated in the most monstrous of idolatrous practices. He even placed an altar made from a Syrian model in the temple, desecrating it. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16. Or Manasseh. His reign was known as one of unfaithfulness to the Lord. 2 Kings 21 blames him for Judah's ultimate destruction. What's it like living in that time and going like, where is God at this? And we thought we had this promise of a king and a savior. And like, what? Then there's the exile, of course. Now, man, you're out of your land. Temple's destroyed. You're scattered from those you love. Where is the future going? Where is, where is their hope? By purposefully selecting these names and events, Matthew is showing us that God is sovereign to bring about his purposes. His will is supreme, and there is nothing that can thwart it. There's nothing in history that is lost without purpose or unredeemable by the mighty, sovereign hand of God. And this allows us to trust that God is at work in the process and has the perfect time to accomplish his purposes. Later in the New Testament, Paul would say it like this in Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come. In other words, when, it was, when the time was just right. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might have the full rights as sons and daughters. 
This does not mean that God is happy about some of the pain that you and I or that we have experienced as we go about this journey of life. I believe that God is pained greatly in a far greater way than we're pained when we see those that we love experience hardship. But it does mean that God is at work to accomplish his purposes in and through you. Some of you may know that, that Shauna and I, we really struggled with infertility. And um, not only did we struggle to get pregnant, but then to carry babies to full term. So we had, unfortunately, lots of miscarriages. Probably the hardest of those was um, actually had a little bit of an interaction here um, with Westwood early on in our married life. We were moving from California to North Carolina to go to grad school. And um, right before leaving from California, found out that we were pregnant. This was after CAFIS. And we're real excited, but reluctant, and uh, a little bit scared. Um, went to the doctor there. Everything looked okay. Came here because of our long history with Westwood. Um, Shauna had a good relationship with Dr. Laurel Dickison. Um, set up an appointment, went into her office. And I can remember Laurel looking up at us with sadness and saying, there's no heartbeat. And, um, and so our move from California to North Carolina began with Shauna going through a very difficult miscarriage, resulting in her holding our 12-week-old baby in her hands while I was back in California performing a wedding. Man, that was tough. Some of you may also know that we've got two kids that have some different medical and different other challenges that often bring a lot of stress and intensity into just parenting, into just family life be really hard. Last year, we were overseas visiting um, some of our global workers. Shauna and I were there visiting them. And I can remember listening to Shauna talking with some of the ladies there who were in the dark spot of struggling with infertility or with miscarriages. There's this other family who had a child that had some of the similar issues as one of our others. And able to spend hours talking with them about our journey. And here's some resources. Here's a good book. Here's something we tried, and just to walk along with them. Did that make it all, you know, worth it and put a pretty bow on it and everything like that? No, but we can see that God is at work still in and through those circumstances. We can see that he can work awful things together for his good. Matthew is showing us in this list of names that God is always at work through the good and the bad to bring about his purposes. His will is supreme over all of history, and secure, unshakable hope is grounded in the sovereignty of God. And the last and brief uh, point that we'll make here about hope that we learn in these these verses is that the life-changing hope of Jesus is not meant to be kept to ourselves. Do you remember the way that Matthew opened up this chapter, opened up the New Testament? It was by declaring that Jesus Christ is the hope of the nations, the hope of the world, the King of kings, the King eternal, the one through whom all nations will be blessed. And verse 21 of Matthew, Matthew 121, will say, He came to bring forgiveness of sins to His people. Why did Jesus come? To save us only by his grace. And that we would join him on his global mission. When we talk about waiting, 
You guys, there are literally billions of people waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus for the first time. Not the second, third, tenth, twentieth, the first time. Of the 7.6 billion people, there are currently at least 3.2 billion who are living in places where there are no other Christians. There are, there are no materials in their languages. There's nobody to tell them of Jesus. They are waiting for somebody to come and to tell them of the eternal hope that they can have. But it's not just globally, is it, either? There are also people in your neighborhood, in your classes, in your coffee shops, at your workplace, in your family, who are waiting desperately for a secure hope because they've been placing it in all kinds of other people and things and stuff and they continue to be left waiting and wanting. Missions, missional living, this is not just a a John Cardona thing. This is not just kind of my like, oh, I get really excited. This is all through the pages of scripture. You see it. You see it all over and you see Matthew's like, we're going to from the beginning, when I tell you about this Jesus, you're going to understand who he is and what he's about. So, what do we do with this? There's a couple of takeaways for you that I, that I want to give you. Number one, Jesus is the only source, the secure object and means of hope. So have you placed your hope in Jesus? Are you here today and you would say, as I look at that lineage, man, I am, I am one of those messed up people who I have turned my heart from God. And today you hear that you are not too far from his grace. We say around here, it's like the ABCs of faith. If that's you and you can admit, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm broken. I admit that I have placed my hope in all kinds of other places. And then you can be, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the one who saves. And he's come to save you. And you put your hope in him and then see, commit. I will commit my life to following Jesus. He's my king. He's king. That means my life is now about serving him. And he is the one whose voice rules in my life. At the beginning, I opened and I said, Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes a heart sick. But you know there's, another, there's an ending to that proverb. And it says this, But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The image of the tree of life given in the Bible is a reference to what Jesus provides through his death and resurrection. And Revelation 2.7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there is hope in Jesus Christ. And then two, I would say, join Jesus on his mission. It is not just for you. Join Jesus on his mission. Pray for what he's doing globally. There's materials in the lobby that will help you do that, that will help educate you and help you to be able to pray. Pray for those that God has put in your life around you. Ask for open doors and open opportunities. And you'll hear about some in just a minute where we can invite people to Christmas Eve as an opportunity for them to hear. The last thing I want to encourage you to do at some point this week, by yourself, with a friend, with a family member, a coworker. Read Romans 8. Read, read through Romans 8 and just look and see what does this passage say about hope? The word hope is all throughout there. What, what more does it teach me? How more can I be grounded in hope based on what I see in this, in this passage? So would you join me?
Jesus Christ, you are our hope. You are the one who saves. You are our Savior. You are our Messiah, the Anointed One. You are the one that we have been waiting for all of our lives. You are the only source of secure hope. There is none like you. We confess that whether we have been walking with you for years or today is the first time that we're making the decision, our hearts are prone to wander away from you. Thank you that you are gracious and you invite us in to your family and that you are sovereign and to work out any good and bad in our lives to accomplish your purposes. May we join you in making this news abundantly clear to those around us and all around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, today, not only are we going to talk about Jesus' coming, but we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper and communion. I think it's fitting because this is something that Jesus did with his followers. It was a meal that he shared with them. It was a time when he said, I'm about to go to the cross. And for some of you, that's going to be really confusing. How is it that that right now victory is happening when I'm hanging on the cross? He said, but you need to understand that there's more that's happening. Because through my bread, what the cracker represents, it is my body being beaten and torn for you to take upon all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your sin upon myself. And the the cup that you're going to drink, it represents my blood. And every time that you do this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. I want you to remember, this is why I came into the world. This is what I'm accomplishing, and this is what I want you to put your hope in, and this is what I want you to share with others. And so this is open.